Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. We live in societies in which sexual harassment and sexual assault are common, what's sometimes called rape culture. Why? Not because of male biology, but because of gender inequality. Its roots go much deeper than sexist ideas. Our lives are actually shaped, they're materially organized, in part by gender relations that are still, in spite of all the legal equality gains that have been won, they're still patriarchal, cis-supremacist, in other words, oppressive to trans people, and heterosexist. So it shouldn't be any surprise that sexual harassment and sexual assault happen among leftists, including among people who are committed to liberation from gender oppression. What may be somewhat surprising is that in spite of so much hard work by feminists, parts of the left are still so bad at challenging sexual harassment and sexual assault. Uh, in 2022, uh, we've seen in, in Canada high-profile cases in two of the largest the small socialist groups in Canada, uh, the Communist Party and Fight Back. So why that is and how socialists can do better are two of the things we're going to discuss, and I'm very glad to be joined by three guests for this episode of Victor's Children. So could you introduce yourselves, and if you'd like, tell listeners a little bit about your background with respect to these issues in any order that you like. Why don't we go um, from across the ocean over? So, Hazel? Yeah. Hello, yeah. My name is Hazel, and I live in London in the UK. Um, I guess my involvement and interest in this, these issues stems from the fact that I was for many years, from the mid 1980s until 2013, a member of the SWP in Britain, um, which notoriously in 2013 had a scandal about um, rape committed by a leading member of the organisation. And I left the organisation due to that issue at that point. And it made me reassess both practicalities about how the organisation responded, but also more theoretical and political issues surrounding rape and sexual violence and how it manifests in left-wing organisations. And that's something I've given a great deal of rethinking and thought to since I left that organisation. And I'll just add for listeners who might not be familiar with the acronyms that SWP is Socialist Workers' Party. Uh, so hi, my name is Jamie. Um, I'm finishing up my degree in social work uh, at Toronto Metropolitan University right now, and I work in harm reduction services, um, hopefully doing some graduate school public health research stuff after that. And my connection to these issues is that for around four years, I was uh, a member of Fight Back, um, which is a small but for the Canadian left kind of big um, Trotskyist organization. Um, and around two months ago, I published an open letter detailing the abuse that I and others experienced in the organization and the very inadequate way that they responded to it. Um, 
Yeah, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, reading a lot of the stuff that came out of the SWP crisis um, from people who were rethinking their politics after that was really helpful for me when I was uh, going through that process and kind of trying to figure out where I stood politically after that. So, um, yeah, it's cool to be here. My name is uh, Sheila, and um, I, I just want to start by introducing myself uh, for this conversation that I'm a sexual violence survivor, in, including in relation to the organization in which I became politically conscious and active in the late 80s. And it took me years to understand a real key experience in that situation as a profound act of sexual coercion and therefore in the sexual violence continuum. And it was the feminist organizing around uh, hashtag me too that really crystallized for me, uh, crystallized it for me, which is really interesting, like so many years later, right, to, to have the, the other shoe drop and be able to face that. I was uh, also for a period of time in the late, late 90s, a peer crisis line counselor, a volunteer one at the Toronto Rape Crisis Centre, Multicultural Women Against Rape. I was also a, um, for uh, 13 and a half years a union rep uh, with the title uh, uh, equity officer. And my job focused on harassment, discrimination and accommodation cases. And I represented uh, numerous, uh, uh, numerous people, uh, entire, all, all women in sexual violence cases. And it was on a university campus. So they were all ac academic workers or graduate and graduate uh, students or contract faculty. And I've been involved in or adjacent to and so affected by <laughs> the political organizations in which in which people, mostly women, are making informal or informal sexual violence complaints about men uh, men in the in, in the group, like over the years, including my own situation in the uh, as I say in the late eighties. I also um, uh, well, I no longer have that union rep job. I also I teach at Toronto Met Metropolitan University uh, on, on contract um, in uh, in a certificate program there. So I'm still kind of in a in a milieu of uh, um, you know the campus based uh, responses and organizing around sexual violence. Thank you all. So I'm going to start with I guess the observation that feminism in a very shallow liberal form, the kind that maybe Justin Trudeau exemplifies has never been more high profile. And more importantly, there's been a, a welcome resurgence of serious feminism in the last decade, although a lot of feminist activity is what Nora Lurito in her book, Take Back the Fight, calls decentralized activism, including hashtag feminism. Those are her phrases. And this feminist upsurge has had a positive impact on the left, broadly speaking. But at the same time, there's also a current of left politics that tends to reduce feminism and other anti-oppression politics to liberal ID pol identity politics and, and to dismiss it. And I think this dovetails with a much older tradition of what we could call Marxist anti-feminism, uh, to use a term of Abby Backens. So just to start, do you have any thoughts about where left politics are at in general today around gender oppression? Yeah, um, I guess to start off, I um, I think there is an interesting dynamic there, right, with the um, Trudeau government and um, I guess what some academics call the the feminist state uh, in its current form. And there's, uh, yeah, an interesting dynamic there where um, that state really only provides benefits to like middle class citizens who really have their foot in the door uh, of capitalism. Um, largely the policies that the Trudeau government has put forward um, are really isolated in, in who they benefit. And um, you contrast that with, say, like the women who are viewed as acceptable collateral damage to the resource extraction projects 
that Justin Trudeau's government pushes through. Um, there's, I think, a, a sharp divide along class lines in Canada, certainly, um, in terms of the, the treatment of women and um, other gender oppressed people and our access to services and, and things like that. And there aren't really, at least I found in my experience, um, there isn't really a political movement there to catch people who are radicalized um, by those issues. Um, certainly my experience, I would say, growing up um, as like a, a queer person, it was very common uh, for people to identify as feminists, for people to care about issues of oppression, but there wasn't really a broader political movement for us to move towards, um, which is why, um, you know, when I got involved in the socialist movement, um, when I was in my late teens, um, the anti identity politics stance was something that I just sort of had to go along with, at least in the milieu that I was in. Um, and I think, uh, unfortunately, the um, struggles against oppression have been alienated from each other and also from like the labor movement, um, in large part because of the failures of the organized left, uh, both historically, you know, we can look to um, like trade unions failing on basic racial solidarity at different points in history or misogynistic violence within um, organizations on the left, which I think is something that's being talked about more now, but is very much something that's been going on for a long time. Um, and even now, there are groups that really, uh, even if they're well-meaning, fail to connect gender depression and capitalism in a theoretically robust way. Um, maybe there's opportunistic recruitment around these issues, but not really a substantial connection uh, in their theoretical perspective that really convinces people of the necessity of socialism. Um, and I think as a response to that that rift, which which very much does exist uh, between like feminism and anti-oppression movements in general and the left, some sections of the left, like the group that I was in, uh, sort of wrongly blame anti-oppression movements for drawing people away from socialism rather than blaming, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if blame is a good way to put it, but rather than rightly understanding um, that that rift originated in the failure of solidarity on the organized left historically. Um, Hazel or Sheila, do you have any thoughts on those general issues around where left politics are at today on gender oppression? I, I don't mind uh, jumping in next. I guess, um, I guess I just, I thought I'd start by saying that I prefer the term sexual violence to sexual harassment and sexual assault. I think it's, I think it's significant to, to comment on that. Um, just generally speaking, because those are legal categories, sexual harassment and sexual assault that are necessary to use at times if you're, you know, engaging or seeking to engage in civil or criminal proceedings or and the complaint locations that people have to find. But I don't find the separation very politically helpful, often on the contrary, because for one thing, what I've noticed is that there's often a how bad is it really approach. Sometimes when there's that first whispery response to an init initial telling of an act or a series of acts of sexual violence, which which it seems to carry like a, a, a de desire to diminish, like we desperately want things to be not as bad as we fear they are, you know, in a, in a situation, in certain circumstances, and I think you know, for various reasons. But also patterns of very light sexual harassment are not only emotionally violent, but they're often groomering grooming towards physical the physical violence of sexual assault. So I think how we talk about it and how we label it is is it kind of reflects our understanding, you know, of some of the 
uh, some of the di- uh, the, di- the relational dynamics and the organizational and individual di- dynamics of how how the, how such violence can occur and recur- reoccur and not be addressed properly. So I guess I would say there's like there. I think there's in terms of where left politics are at today. I think there's an ideology, you know, and and there's practice, and then there's there's tendencies to be reactive versus proactive. There's not maybe a clear separation around prevention and response. And I think I really do think sometimes maybe groups are just implicitly assuming that the quote unquote bad apples aren't in their space, aren't in their sphere, and because they're not the people they they like, you know. Nobody we like is is going to be a rapist. Uh, that's how could that be, right? Um, and I also don't think that uh, lots of milieus recognize subtle non-consensual sexual behavior as such. So that can it can just kind of float around and become part of the culture of a uh, of a group, uh, you know, which is obviously problematic and then I just think of the issue of consent right what 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 do our groups or organizations like uh broadly speaking really understand about what consent means and how it happens you know that it's dynamic and it's relational but fundamentally always an individual process and I think we do need a lot more deep discussion and 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 understanding around consent but I think we're a long ways away from having political climates in our groups often in which to have that conversation and it's and it usually and we can't just have the conversation in response to a ser- to to a complaint but that's when things usually you know get discussed because uh something bad has happened right so so even if we I think of the continu- if I think of a continuum of enthusiastic consent and unenthusiastic consent and then coercion you know if I think of that I think of a continuum a continuum and uh there and then i think in in an organization i think about my my initial experience uh, uh my first political experience was not personal but first political experience with sexual violence if there's a coercive set of relations in the group whereby there's um men with organizational power and have implicit uh if not explicit mentorship roles um and uh say an apparent relationship starts in in that setting how do we collectively understand that you know how does the group understand these relationships and if i if suddenly in those relationships the 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 uh there there is a, a someone complaining that the sexual violence happening uh how 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 do people understand that as uh, legitimate even if the person people have been in relationship so uh, you know, as the group as a whole and individuals. So I just think there's like, these are, these are a lot of, you know, cultural, cultural stuff around consent that there often isn't space created to, to unpack. I guess another thing I'd say in terms of, uh, um, race politics, I also find race and racism group politics play out in sexual violence cases. Um, if the complainant, uh, or the survivor is, is a white woman, and the respondent or abuser is black, indigenous, or a racialized man, for example, I have observed what I might call a higher believability factor of the complainant and a higher concern factor in relation to the complainant um, because of, you know, how racism and uh, uh, sexism in, intertwine. So I guess those are the couple of thoughts I have around that. Hayes. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm trying to find a way to jump in. There's so much there um, to discuss. I guess if we go back to the original question about um, 
feminism and the so-called hashtag feminism me too and something i do think it's important to say that i think that the me too campaign whatever its limitations and there are many has had generally a very positive effect on people feeling that these issues are serious and can be raised and also in terms of some workplaces and i say this very guardedly because i'm only talking in britain of, of some public sector or i work as an administrator in a university for example so in some workplaces it means that these issues are taken up albeit in a very we must tick the right box to say we've done that kind of way um but i do think it's made a difference in terms of people's confidence to come forward and to talk about these things and that in itself affects how the left is responding to these issues so for example in britain um we had the case of the police a police um killing of sarah everard where there was a protest movement that 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 arose in response to that which were very much um affected by me too and very much we can't allow this to go on and it was a very wide general movement one of the things interesting that happened with that movement um afterwards that a lot of the activists um because of the um police bills going through and police brutality and the fact that police were central to this it became very much a movement against police violence and the issue of gendered violence um actually got quite side tracked in a lot of left groups so it became a mobilization about police violence rather than gendered violence which obviously that mobilization was a good mobilization but nonetheless i think a lot of activists felt that gender issue had been had been kind of sidelined i mean in britain we also have a lot of other issues so one of the things i don't want to go into great detail about it cuz i don't want to sideline the dis- i don't want to sort of have this as part of the discussion in a big way but we have the issue around trans liberation quite strongly which is really so we have um what are so called gender critical feminists who are essentially transphobic and ought to be very much often on the left as well so they're not just saying they are you know they're not coming from a right wing position they're coming from a what they would call a feminist left position it's often people in trade union bureaucracies and it's often people in influenced by the communist party although that might be a bit tangential so we also have that issue which i think affects the feminist movement in britain as well so it's quite hard to know how this is impacting so you have you have some left groups that carry on in the old way that others were talking around in terms of seeing sexual violence or and i agree i agree um with Sheila about the language that we should use around that um but seeing sexual violence very much as a more as a lesser issue as a secondary issue not the main issue that they're fighting about there's still i think that's still predominant in communist party influenced organizations still in some labor party connected organizations and still to some extent in organizations like Yes WP although I think that's changed quite a lot in a lot of younger and newer organizations that have developed in recent years who very much take a very different and much more proactive view in terms of what we do about fighting and tackling um sexual violence so we've got um small groups but small activist groups the one I'm thinking of is one called Sisters Uncut which is a very active very young 
very vibrant, very anti-racist, very active group against sexual violence, which I think gets quite a lot of support and does a lot of kind of publicity stunts, but has been very important in changing the left atmosphere in terms of how we tackle and how we confront sexual violence. And I think that's true amongst a lot of student groups and so on. Um, but I think certainly in terms of a lot of the old Trotskyist or radical left groups, there's still a view that um, it's not the main issue, that it's not something you particularly organise around um, or fight against. I think that's still that still tends to dominate a bit. Yeah, thank you. I, um, Sheila and, and Jamie, would either of you like to uh, say anything about connections you might see between the kind of... Uh, you know, left politics around gender oppression, how it specifically affects efforts to combat sexual violence, and some of the things that Hazel was just talking about in the British context. Um, yeah, I, I can go first. I think um, I think my personal experience is very much within the um, the context that that I was organizing in, um, which was very much yeah the anti identity politics stance um, that I think a lot of older sects have taken. Um, which I found practically meant that they sort of buried their heads in the sand um, in terms of any theoretical developments around sexual violence that have really happened since the 1950s. Um, Like if we're really just taking an orthodox Marxist approach, which the group that I was a part of was um, to the extent where we were sort of discouraged from reading anything outside um, the Marxist canon, we were really missing any theoretical developments in terms of how we understand sexual violence, Um, you know, like understanding um, that violence is not being sort of a a fluke or something that happens just within the private sphere and should be dealt with as such, but something that is systemic in a a very meaningful sense of the word, something that is created by the culture that it exists in. Um, And I I definitely found that within uh, these groups, because of the absence of that analysis, that it, it very much was a culture that produced um, and enabled sexual violence. Um, I think the atmosphere created by the sort of Marxist anti-feminism or anti-identity politics, whatever we're calling it, um, it does create a, an intrinsic bias in how sexual violence is responded to, um, where there's this sort of reactionary fear of, of the slippery slope, right? Where if we start believing, um, you know, survivors of, uh, various kinds of you know, domestic violence, sexual violence within these organizations. Um, you know, what's next? <laughs> Which I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it's actually a, a big risk in that, in the sense that they felt that it was. But um, it, just in general, I think um, the anti-feminist or anti-identity politics slant comes with a uh, an opposition towards the self-organization of the oppressed, um, even within these groups, right? Where um, it's it's considered identity politics to have, say, like a, a women's caucus or um, a queer or trans caucus or anything like that. Um, but uh, as I think we all know that, um, you know, the solidarity between um, men who perpetuate sexual violence is very much intact behind closed doors. So when um, marginalized people are prevented from organizing together in solidarity, uh, it doesn't really cancel out the um, very existent um, solidarity between uh, the men who commit and enable 
So I would say that the the solidarity between men who commit sexual violence is very present, um, which sort of creates a, an atmosphere where where the deck is is stacked against you uh, as uh, as a victim or a complainant. And uh, one last thing I would say is that this atmosphere doesn't just create um, organizational failures around sexual violence. It also creates organizational failures around things like disability, um, where they had a, a similarly combative approach to um, people needing accommodations to be involved in political organizing that was sort of viewed with the same hostility. Um, but yeah, I would say that that attitude really just recreates the same general social exclusion and hierarchy that exists everywhere else in capitalist society and the harm that comes with it. Yeah, I don't think anything, anything uh, pithy to add on this I, because what I have to say connects with this question and perhaps some other things we're going to talk about. So I'll save that. Okay, so... No, I think, well, since we know that, of course, some radicals will unfortunately engage in sexual violence to some degree because they're people formed by the society, uh, what left groups do to prevent it and how they respond when it happens can vary quite a lot. And I can think back to my own experience when I was uh, a young person in the International Socialists in in Canada. And uh, just one of the kind of formative political experiences one has uh, observing a man who was, you know, was expelled for essentially for stalking. Um, in a group where there were lots of problems with how the group dealt with um, these things theoretically and practically, but there was, you know, quite a, a lot of understanding in, in some ways. Um, but, you know, as I mentioned earlier on, and we've kind of touched on this, there have been, there've been two high-profile cases in Canada this year of the leaders of socialist groups handling sexual violence very badly. Um, and while there are many differences between the Communist Party of Canada and Fight Back, one thing they have in common is that they're both groups that organize along what I think we could call micro-party lines, as if they were genuine socialist parties. In other words, as if they were much larger organizations rooted in a section of the working class, which they're not, uh, regardless of what names they might call themselves. And this is not a new thing. This is a longstanding practice on parts of the socialist left. And I co-authored an article several years ago, which addressed this question. And we argued in it that sexual violence, um, you know, is a problem in all organizations and societies where gender oppression exists. um, But there's often a connection between the micro-party approach and inadequate responses by a socialist group to oppressive actions by members. This approach tends to inflate the importance of the group in the minds of its members, and then preserving the group often becomes an end in itself. When people make the stability or preservation of the leadership and its so-called Leninist authority their top concern, they may avoid suspending or expelling members, especially so-called leaders, for oppressive behavior. Organizing on microparty lines with a fetish of leadership can fuel an abusive group culture. That kind of culture reproduces rather than challenges our society's oppressive forms of behavior. And socialist groups that treat their own own expansion as what matters most are usually resistant to opening themselves up to struggles against oppression, learning from them, and changing. And things you've already said have have touched on this, but um, I know that Hazel and Jamie, since you've both been members of uh, this, this kind of organization, I wonder if you have any specific thoughts you'd like to share about the connection between the, the micro-party model <coughs> and sexual violence. Okay, I'll come in a minute. I mean, I think just to say, to start with, I think, although I agree that um, sexual violence is bound to arise within socialist organisations to an extent because we are brought up and exist within this um society and how it's organized I do think we have to be very careful in saying that to be honest because I think there is a real problem that that is actually used as an excuse certainly when I was in the um, SWP in Britain that was an excuse that came up straight away that oh well you know this is bound to happen and it became like an almost almost a 
not exactly a justification for it, but it certainly became a complete trying to excuse that behaviour. And I think we have to be quite careful about pointing that because actually, you know, my immediate reaction myself was, well, I expect better from a socialist organisation. And that was my first reaction. So I think we do have to be careful on that. I mean, I certainly think one of the things that was very true around that crisis was it became clear that the organisation, that that certain individual or the individual who'd committed the rapes was put above um, put above the interests of the survivor and was put above, so put above individual interests, but put above um, um, the principles and everything that that organisation was purportedly supposed to be upholding. Um, it's also true that, so the leadership of these organisations is venerated and so you cannot have a, a, a leading member so accused. And I think that reflects in a lot of ways the idea that the organisation is above its members and the organisation is all. And that was certainly the left culture that had developed within the SWP so that people, I mean, not everyone. I mean, I certainly, I was a leading member of that organisation for several years uh, and wrote for its publications and so on. And certainly... I look back, I mean, when the crisis happened, it made me actually re-examine all my behaviour. And I found it wanting in a lot of cases where a lot of things were excused or a lot of small behaviours were excused. You didn't like them or you may have thought they were sexist or you felt uncomfortable with them. But you didn't want to take it too far because the interests of the party came above whatever these individuals were experiencing. And that, I think, was a completely wrong way of 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 looking at things and sorry i've got the the and the organization had to be preserved and sometimes it was um put in terms of the class we've got to we've got to follow class it'd be bad for the class whereas really what they meant by the class was the party that's what they meant i mean you know in the interest of the class my view would be surely liberation and women's liberation and against sexual violence would be what was in the interest of the class. But so it's actually the interest of the party they were talking about, the interest of the organisation, how it seemed. And that became the most important thing. And that was that it, it was to protect the individual that had abused and to protect in the name of protecting the organisation um, in which it had taken place. And that came above so it led to a whole series of absolutely horrendous positions and arguments about sexual violence and about women being put, including repeating a lot of rape myths and a lot of tropes about how women asked for it, how it was the woman's fault, how you can't really believe all women and all these two things. They came out, I mean, they came out of people's mouths and you thought, why are you saying this? And you couldn't really believe it. So I think that is definitely an issue and a problem. Um, I, I, I don't know how you're kind of defining micro-organisations because it does depend. I mean, the SWP was a micro-organisation. I mean, I don't know how big, because the membership was always contested how big it was. It claimed to be, you know, seven or eight thousands at some points. But I think when I was, at the end of the time I was a member, it was probably about two, maybe three at the most mem- thousand members. But that's obviously a lot bigger than, um, I mean, a much smaller I'm connected to a much smaller organisation now, which is a sort of came out of the whole crisis around the SWP, which is um, RS21, uh, Revolutionary Socialism in the 21st Century. And that has, you know, two to three hundred memberships. So that really is a very micro 
organization. And I think one of the things and one of the reasons I stay within it and and, and have been involved in it is because it's actively trying, because it kind of arose from the crisis around um, sexual violence in the SWP. It kind of, it's it's got its ear to the ground in terms of really actively trying to um, cultivate a different atmosphere and a different culture, because I think one of the things that maybe we haven't talked about is about how the culture of those organisations actually prevents people from talking out, prevents prevents people from coming forward, um, allows a certain level of sexist behaviour to continue and to exist. And I think one of the things in RS21 we've tried to do is to, to create a different culture. We've also created uh, different guidelines. We've got... Um, what I call survivor-centered guidelines on um, on um, sexual violence, where we don't try and act as the arbiters and judges, or as if we're some little arm of the state, or as if we're trying to, you know, as if we're a legal court and we're going to um, try someone. Um, it's very much to have a um, survivor-centered approach that's supportive and that um, puts real sort of anti-oppression and liberation politics at the centre of trying to deal with that and that always gives voice to the survivors of that um, violence and abuse. I'm not saying it's perfect. We've tried, we've thought about, I think our guidelines are good, but I think they could be developed um, and made much better. We've discussed things like, should we have um, more support in place? Should we have, people have talked about, should there be some lessons learned from restorative justice type um, things? So we've tried to look in other directions as well, but it's definitely an ongoing debate and it's one that you can't leave to just sit there, oh, we've got a policy and it's okay. You have to think about it at all times. And I don't think it's unconnected to the ways that the organisation runs in more general senses, just for things like it's connected to the fact that women generally um, don't take such active roles or take more organisational roles, don't write as much, don't aren't seen as the theoretical gurus of an organisation, which permeates left organisations right the way through. And I think sexual violence, I'm not trying to say it's the same thing, but it's connected to that whole way that organisations are set up and structured. I'll leave it there for now, sorry. Yeah, I agree with everything that was just said. And I think... Um definitely resonates a lot with my experience. Um, I found that being in Fightback, um, there is a way that groups like this work that is structurally similar to other oppressive institutions that we find throughout society. Um, I think there are similarities between the way that like a, a micro party operates and the way that like the patriarchal family operates or the way that a corporation treats its employees. Um, at least in my experience, I found that there was this um, very intense focus on keeping disagreements um, internal or like within the the party, right? Because if we talk about uh, maybe anything bad or unhealthy that's going on uh, outside, that it can be used by our enemies against the party, um, which obviously I think creates um, the isolation necessary for abuse to to flourish, um, as well as the sort of necessary deference to leaders and authority. Um, as well as, at least I found in my experience, um, the assumption that like discipline from leadership to party members is 
like a, an acceptable thing. Um, like within the organization I was in, there was a certain amount that it was accepted for like people on the executive committee to like raise their voices at people or belittle them or, you know, and it just being raised myself in a, a very feminist household, that was something that was totally <laughs> out of left field to me. Like that would not be acceptable in my family, but it was acceptable within that sort of group culture. So it did feel very socially conservative in that way. And I, I think because these, you know, like microsects are trying to emulate the form of larger political parties, which themselves, you know, have their historical origins um, in these sort of oppressive social formations, but they're doing it on a much smaller and more isolated scale. Uh, you can definitely see, I think, the way that that leads to the abuse of power pretty easily. Um, something else I thought uh, that Hazel brought up um, that is a, a huge problem here is the, um, I think because of this sort of like inflated sense of self-importance, right, that you are the the nucleus of the mass socialist party, um, there's this idea that these groups can't actually deal with sexual violence internally as if they are like a, a mini state almost, right? Like the sort of play acting, um, like a bourgeois court system, which, um, you know, at least in my experience, you get all of the trauma and unnecessary, like re going through everything bad that happened to you that comes with the bourgeois court system, but without any of the meager protection <laughs> that comes with involvement in the bourgeois court system. So really a worst of both worlds. Um, so that's not good, but I think does very much come with this sort of this unrealistic group mythology around, you know, whatever sect being the only path forward for humanity, right? Like the organization sort of above the class as, as this entity that um, we need to be dedicated to first and foremost, I, I think leads to um, sort of an ends justify the means atmosphere. Um, because really, if, if you truly believe that whatever um, small socialist organization is the only path forward for humanity, there is a certain level of justification of interpersonal harm and, and violence that uh, that goes with that. Um, so I think having a, a more healthy and, and realistic perspective to what organizations look like and, and the role that they can play in the movement um, sort of echoes out and uh, also creates more healthy interpersonal dynamics within them. Um, I, th I would say as well that um, groups that are centered around sort of their own self-promotion and the creation of like an internal bureaucracy, almost for a bureaucracy's sake. Um, I think it attracts um, in some cases, um, self-serving people. Uh, I I don't think like, this isn't to say that interpersonal harm doesn't happen in like mutual aid groups or anarchist organizing, for example, because it, it very much does. But I think um, when you're creating sort of a, a party for a party's sake and you're, you're not involved within the communities that you exist and organize in, no one's really helping anybody in a meaningful way. It's just sort of a power structure being created for a hypothetical future um, situation in which that power structure will be larger. Um, I, I think it can uh, drive people who do want to be in a position of, of power over others. Um, I, I think there's also an issue where um, because of the sort of parasitic nature of like a, a microsect, um, there is the elevation 
of anybody who can dedicate a significant amount of time and energy to the organization. Um, and I mean, I think within our current society, a lot of people are alienated. A lot of people are socially disintegrated for various reasons. So I, I don't mean to say this judgmentally because I would count myself to a certain ex extent as someone who is, you know, socially alienated in various ways. But um, I think there is a real problem where you have these individuals who dedicate all of their time and energy to the micro party or, or sect that they're in. Um, and it is indicative of a, a certain con like concerning level of, of social disintegration sometimes, especially when we have like, um, you know, like, like men who are maybe older than the undergrads they're directing, who have made this their entire identity and, and organizing like lifestyle is, is just dedicated to this. Um, I think in a healthy organization, if, if we saw someone like that, who was, um, you know, making involvement in the party their whole life to the detriment of their health and well-being um, in a healthy environment, you know, we would intervene and say like, hey, you know, are, are you doing okay? Is, is everything going all right for you life-wise? But within um, the microsect, someone whose whole life is wrapped up in the party is, that's a good thing. Right. And that person becomes a, a very important cadre who is doing so much work for the party that, um, you know, they they are sort of beyond reproach. Um, that was something I witnessed a number of times. Right. And I think, um, yeah, I'm not really sure what the answers there are other than uh, just elevating anyone who can get a few undergrads to sell a newspaper to the level of sort of untouchable, very important organizing superstars. Uh, a recipe for disaster. Uh, and I think in a more healthy organizing context, that would happen less. So when we think about uh, responding to sexual violence, an important influence, I think, on how feminist activists today do this is the kind of institutional anti-sexual violence programs and policies that we find on university campuses. And listeners may have heard an earlier episode of Victor's Children, where I discussed this with the hosts of the podcast, uh, Anti-Girl Boss Socialist Club. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts in particular on the, the influence of those kinds of institutional programs on how activists respond to sexual violence. I, I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> so I, I guess what I guess what I want to do is distinguish uh, between, you know, the work done by student groups on campus, um, student organizing, but also the supports, like there were supports provided by different kinds of student groups and, and the university organized ones or college organized ones. And that's what I'm mostly co commenting on. And the first thing I, I, no, I noted to myself when I was answering this question was that they're both a blessing and a curse, the supports that exist. And <clears throat> what I mean by that is comes from having witnessed and participated in uh, creating and and challenging the system change trajectory at a at a Toronto uh, university campus over thirteen and a half years when I was a when I was a union rep for an academic union of um, uh, graduate students and contract faculty and at the beginning when I first started that role so that was back in um, in fall of two thousand and six um, there was such a lack of institutional consciousness and procedure that further violence was done to complainants in the process of trying to complain. It was, it was a disaster, you know, having to repeat stories and to people who didn't get how they were supposed to interact with people trying the stories and didn't know what to do or how to, how to refer to them next. So it was a, it was quite a mess, but, and then, you know, at the end of my, you know, work in that environment, uh, 
you know, that we, we had a very well detailed mapped out procedure and broad consent programs. And there was a whole, you know, sexual violence center, uh, sexual violence response center. And that was something that came, arose from in 2017 from the Wynn Liberal government in Ontario requiring as a part of the change to the Education Act and the Occupational Health and Safety Act to include sexual harassment, um, requiring that universities have these centers, right? So, and so, you know, there's, I think there's a paradox we end up in generally. And I think of it as when I think back to racist policing fightbacks pre Black Lives Matter, you know, many years ago, uh, that when we're demanding much needed institutional forms, then with that we end up almost necessarily, not totally necessarily, but almost necessarily participating in undermining our own radicalism, right? Um, so we end up in these situations where, you know, no, we don't want that, but it's better than we had before. So, you know, let's try that out, which is both true and not true in certain situations. So let me, the, the example of the sexual violence center, um, which are, you know, really, they're extremely supportive spaces and also extremely disappointing places, sometimes on the literally same day with interacting with literally the same person. Uh, uh, and they are really function institutionally as liability management centers uh, to uh, that that's, you know, a, a system thing. I'm not saying that's how individuals... Uh, survivors always experience them, but that's really how they end up functioning um, for the the corporate university, right? And they're woven into the whole university bureaucracy and center staff are employees of the university. And depending on the structure of each university, that the center may or may be greater or lesser distance from the actual presidential office and the policies and decrees of the, the president of the day. So, so it's very, you know, very problematic spaces, spaces, and 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 you know, as I say, it's a it's a real paradox. And it, while I was, you know, preparing, thinking about this conversation, there was an article in the the Toronto Star at the end of August on the continuing alarming rate of sexual violence on campus in Canada that dis- continues despite all these, you know, mini reforms uh, uh, across uh, universities and. Um, colleges and uh they talked about in the article about the red zone issue so folks aren't familiar with the term the red zone it's that eight it's like the eight week period uh at the beginning of the academic year where 50 percent of sexual sexual assaults happen and so this is happening routinely as part of welcoming activities to the campus so why indeed is it not a national crisis that there's these uh egregious you know deeply traumatic experiences of sexual violence on campuses and and why is it uh it's left for each each campus uh each campus to respond uh so it's it's like a, a there's a an epidemic of sexual violence on campuses um and when i think about you know campus based feminist organizers as i as i uh, observed it over the years um it's it, like there was a you know you know opportunities for for such folks to be hired into the into the university bureaucracy, and it seemed to me that in practice they had you know had three choices: they could do the best radical work they could, and there were some people that get in there and do the best radical work they could, uh, getting constant pushback and knowing that they're going to be out in their ass in a year or two. Right? They're just not going to last. It's not going to be okay. 
to be that radical, even though they're hired because of their uh, radical politics and skills. Or they're to be, to, to accept their, uh, end up accepting their limitations unhappily and often ending up on sick leave, uh, because of, uh, dealing with the, uh, being, be, becoming literally ill from dealing with the, the, the environment that is actually more focused ultimately on liability management, um, than, than ending sexual violence. Or they get subsumed into the bureaucracy more or less willingly as, as part of a career path. Um, yeah. So, so I think, uh, I, I, I think there's a lot of work has been done over the last, uh, maybe 15 years or so, but if we still have the red zone, it's a big question of, you know, how, how, uh, how significant is that work ultimately? Any other thoughts about the issue of this, this influence? Um, just to, that was really interesting listening to Sheila there. And just to say, I recognized some of the things you were saying just from my experience in Britain. Um, because I work in the university sector and I'm a trade union rep there as well. We've got a lot of, um, Stop It, it's called our campaign, um, initiatives, um, anti-sexual violence initiatives, encouragement to report, encouragement to go, um, to the university with any issues. And I think, as you say, obviously it's a really good initiative and absolutely 100% support such initiatives because it does raise the issue. But of course, a lot of it sometimes is on a rhetorical level because the universities want to show that they're doing something and to be seen to be doing something, but never really tackling anything structurally or any deeper and providing a level of support, which is great, but not enough support. And I think, I think it's the, a question that, that socialists always face often in, in, certainly this is in my workplace. I'm talking rather than as a student, but certainly it's something you feel you have to kind of try to use the, the, the things that have been created about to fight and combat sexual violence and welcome them, but to try and use them to push things a bit further and to get some real measures in place that are actually going to make a difference. And it's trying to push a bit further and to use use those official initiatives in a better direction than sometimes they can go in. I mean, that's all I, I feel I can say on that because obviously the situation in Britain is a bit different. Um, so I think, yeah, I'll leave it that. Yeah, I am. Um... Again, I really agree with everything that's been said this far, so I don't have uh, too much to add. But um, I think part of that is that my experience, um, the organization is I was involved with um, sort of operated more like a, a pre-Me Too uh, corporation as opposed to a post-Me Too corporation. And in terms of the social norms, like they, um, they haven't really, um, I would say, hit where like an average sort of neoliberal workplace is in terms of uh, responding to sexual violence. Um, I remember I started uh, a contract position with my university over the summer while I was sort of dealing with everything with Fight Back. And um, at my new job, they explained to me, you know, their sexual harassment policy and, you know, here's what you want to do if if you want to report, but the issue is the person that you go to to report to, here's the other person you can go to and stuff like that. And I was just sort of like, wow, uh, my socialist organization is behind my workplace in here so there's something's very wrong here um but i, I would say overall the the parallels nonetheless between um the sort of inadequate way that 
institutions, uh, whether they're universities or workplaces or political organizations, respond to sexual violence and um, other issues of oppression. I, I think the overarching uh, trend is that these are bureaucratic responses to appease survivors enough to move on, you know, no lawsuits or anything like that, but they aren't actually transformative or, or challenging to the underlying social relations that produce uh, sexual violence. Like um, a lot of like campus left organizations um, still are very much a part of the um, like the red zone welcoming period that Sheila mentioned. Um, like as someone who uh, is finishing my degree right now, you can really like feel the atmosphere on these campuses. And in the first few weeks, it's, it's very much a, like, let's get everyone out to the bar and like, yeah, you know, this frat party culture. And in, in my experience doing campus organizing, um, we were very much a part of that, just like all the other clubs were. Um, and so I think it's, uh, on the one hand, um, you know, I guess that is valuable for recruitment, but it's, um, it, it, it's participating in that exact um, culture that, that creates um, and enables violence. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd say in terms of the critiques of these sort of institutional um, like anti-harassment programs and, and things like that, a, a big um, criticism that's often brought up it, it is that, right? That the um, they're really just treating it a symptom rather than a, a root issue. Um, and even on the, the socialist left, if we're trying to um, treat the root issue, how do we deal with the symptoms in the meantime, <laughs> you know? And um, I, I'd say that's an open-ended question that I, I really don't have a, a firm response to, but um, certainly a question that I have been wrestling with myself. Well, that takes us right to the next thing I was hoping we could talk about, kind of going forward about how we on the left, people on the left can do better when it comes to preventing and responding to sexual violence. And I'm wondering, Sheila, given all your work um, as an equity officer for Union Local around this, if you have any thoughts to start us off here. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess the the first thing I want to say is that there was a report released by a pan-Canadian network of students groups uh, working on sexual violence at the campus level. It was on August uh, 22nd about the state of affairs and they have a 10 point call of action. It's called our campus, our safety student leaders action plan. So they have calls to action for post-secondary institutions, also for provincial and territorial governments and also for the federal federal government. So I just wanted to sort of say that they're like that 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 work is happening. What would be interesting to see is how that translates into organizing work, right? Uh, not that that isn't organizing work, but I'm just saying what happens with the report now, in terms of you know uh, movement movement building, um, you know, kind of away from uh, de- dealing with the complexity of the stuff that we've been talking about about uh, how you can get uh, subsumed into. Uh, 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 bureaucratic spaces and negotiations but it's it's um it's it's worth having a look at um and there's a lot of potential there i I guess i like a number of things that i i would comment on around this in terms of um better at responding i you know i just think every case is about the person in a system 
right? So, uh, uh, you know, you uh, you want to have survivor-driven individual remedies when you're when you're you know uh, supporting a, a survivor in advancing uh, a complaint, as well as as see how 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 directed by that survivor, not over their wishes, but how you can uh, turn those into to try to advance meaningful system ones. So like, you know, we, the, the, you know, my, my experience was there's a lot of attempts to in resolution to, to have these, um, you know, uh, resolution points, like create a community to discuss how to prevent, you know, so we don't, don't want to be agree agreeing when we're resolving cases with employers and, you know, uh, the corporations that we will agree <coughs> to create a committee to discuss on something meaningful. And I would say, uh, you know, unions use grievances as organizing tools. That we could do that so much better in general in unions, politicizing the gr grievance process, which has become, you know, very a very stale, you know, bureaucratic grievance arbitration procedure in a lot of our unions. But um, when we're in around the topic of se sexual violence, if the survivor griever uh, uh, is interested and can be supported in doing so in some way, it's, it's an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity. And, um, it, it kind of, so that's in terms of the grievance arbitration. But when we think about bar the bargaining process, um, having the, uh, the union that takes, uh, take, uh, seriously bargaining as an opportunity to extract, you know, uh, employer accountability. And to center union and survivor member power in the complaining process. So we keep control of our complaint process in the form of a grievance, right? And we don't end up being, you know, we don't end up being so uh, beholden to these, you know, these sexual violence centers as, as the be all and end all that are going to, uh, you know, solve all our problems. So that, you know, that, that way we can, we deal with that paradox I was talking about a little differently by maintaining that union uh, uh, control and helping to build union power around uh, around those uh, you know bargaining moments. Also, national union policies are a real challenge. So when you have uh, because some of the some of the uh, analysis I was hearing from my comrades here on uh, the microparty model, I could say that. Similar stuff happens in union locals and in national locals, you know, which are not, you know, would not style themselves as the, you know, far left, you know, liberatory organizations that uh, your organizations were, were talking about. But there's still quite some very similar, um, uh, similar dynamics. <coughs> interesting. So there needs to be national union policies on sexual violence and prevention that are distinct from codes of conduct type. Procedures. So, the, the, as an example, the national union that I was both a member of and worked for had this constitutional charge and trial process for any infraction of the union constitution whatsoever that involved making a complaint, a written complaint to your local executive, who then all discuss it. And then they take it to a general members meeting to strike a committee to investigate it. And that is completely inappropriate in the case of sexual violence. Completely inappropriate, right? to to air it like that um and in terms of also uh, i i also just want to say quite simply in terms of uh you know doing better at preventing and responding let's believe complainants let's get really a lot better at believing let's you know and, and a couple of things that i think about it, um 
in relation to that are, you know, the, 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 the phrases trauma informed and survivor centric are very popular phrases. And I'm glad they're very popular and should be popular. And I think those phrases are, are really important to use. And I'm also wondering how many people really understand what it means in practice. What does it mean in practice to be trauma, trauma informed and survivor centric? And, you know, when I was thinking about this, I thought I was thinking of Sarah Polly, who is a, in Canada, fairly well-known uh, director, actor, writer, who recently published a book of essays called Run Towards Dan Danger. And in one of those essays, she talked about it, uh, an experience of sexual violence when she was 16 at the hands of Jean uh, Gomeshi, also a very, uh, I would say, infamous now Canadian uh, personality after uh, his trial and unfortunate acquittal in 2016 from um allegations alleged acts of sexual violence. So she talked about in that essay, basically how um, lawyer said, said that she would make a terrible witness because of all her inconsistencies in her story and then how she interacted with Gomeshi as a guest on his radio shows years after that incident and how she was, you know, kind of giggling and, you know, and what we know is use a term called fawning, basically, and interacting with him and, you know, and, and, uh, and we and these kinds of things are, uh, you know, what these things that are seen by courts as, as as one Ontario judge called it deceptive and manipulative in terms of uh, survivor conduct are actually responses to trauma. Our survivor responses to trauma in order to how to manage manage dealing with this powerful person who may be still coming at you and stalking you and maybe still have an impact on your on your livelihood in the future. So. So we have to get I just generally better of of un understanding these, you know, inconsistent behaviors and why aren't they acting like uh A, B, and C in response to having been uh, abused like this? Why would they be still talking to him? Why would they, you know, so we can't so this is part of the believability thing is really getting into what it is to be trauma-informed and survivor-centric. And I guess the other thing I think around the, the believability thing is what I would call the what if we don't like her, but we like him phenomenon, right? So one of my comrades here mentioned, you know, how men men really support each other and, does, you know, circle the rag wagons, but there's also women involved in supporting men as well because of political dynamics in in an organization and I, again, I've seen this outside of the micro party situation where, you know, so it could be a political, you know, it could be, um, you know, the left has power right now in, in, in a union local. So we're guarding that power. So, and they're, you know, one of their chosen, you know, their, their chosen people, um, you know, is, is maybe, uh, the target of a, a um, a se sexual violence complaint by someone we don't really quite like politically. You know, we just we're just not that into her, and she's not part of our our kind of our, our milieu, right? So that 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 kind of stuff has to be dealt with. We have to have policies and practices, and this is part of the uh, the part of the prevention before uh, having having taking the the you know understanding gender impressive gender oppression as a set of coercive social relations outside of any moment of sexual violence and taking that seriously in advance or uh uh before you know any kind of complaint happens so that we 
we we understand you know that kind of mutual respect and dignity and believably believability we have principles we apply regardless of who our friends are and who are you know in, in the in any given moment who our allies are um i guess that kind of connects too with something i i think um i was hearing a little bit um from comrades in earlier questions too when i was thinking about organizational cultural in general around consent and dissent is every do we think everything is fine in our organization except for occasional problems with bad apples and are we allowed to disagree about anything are we allowed to bring forward you know uh do, do we have an environment that that really embraces and encourages political debate with differences of opinion um uh, or must we must we toe the line of formal and even worse informal leaders implicit leaders so because we can't do that about you know all kinds of topics we're not bloody likely to be able to do do it well around sexual violence right so um and you know think about you know when we're ideologically tougher on certain issues and 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 some issues than others for example if it's you know hetero hetero seen as heterosexual sexually gendered acts of sexual violence versus transphobic acts of sexual violence do we recognize do are we as the group able to recognize these as the same level of seriousness and part of the same kind of overall uh gender oppression kind of a set of relations kind of phenomenon so yeah i think there's some kind of work to do in in those areas hazel jamie either of you like to join in on this um yeah i was very struck um Earlier when Jamie said um, left groups are running to catch up <laughs> with corporate organizations or institutions like universities and stuff. So I think it just really struck me because I think that's true. I think certainly, I know it was a few years ago, the SWP crisis, now, but certainly when that happened, you thought that not only would a trade union <laughs> do better than this, my boss might even do better than this in terms of taking seriously the nature of the complaint. So um, that really struck me. So I think there's an awful lot that that left groups can do. And I just think if they start, in, in a way that feels too much, it's a bit like, again, what Jamie said, how do you get to dealing with the root issue as well as dealing with the immediate, immediate, um, the immediate issue and how it's affecting individuals and how it's playing out in the lives of individuals so it's a big task but I think immediately groups can start laying down different principles the sorts of things that Sheila was talking about and also start changing its practices and beginning to try to institute a change of culture in the nature of of these groups and the way that we organize that we're not venerating particular individuals that we're not venerating particular political issues that seem to be that are considered more important than others and that we have to have quite a major change in the in ways that we organize and I think the sort of so-called Leninist party model personally I think is really an outdated model and needs to completely change we need to really rethink and I don't so I don't think yeah I think I think the change has to be quite widespread <laughs> But then immediately the group starts thinking about these changes, it can immediately make a difference as well. So I think it's it's like we've got so much to do, but actually just making any change will make it better than it is. Because I think the left has been so terribly bad on dealing with issues of sexual violence so far. I certainly think, I mean, I agree 
with Sheila in terms of having um, policies and principles in place that are survivor-centred, that are trauma-informed, and that always um, believe the complainant. I think that's really, really important. I think we have to have... um, I mean, we talked in my little organisation, we haven't actually done it yet, and it's something I'm really thinking about it now, we should go back to thinking about, about maybe having a bit more education. When we have education on women Trotsky, and we have education on this, that and the other, and imperialism, and all these issues, and important, they're great, that's great, but actually do we have educational type things or workshops on sexual violence, on trauma? Have, do, would anyone know? If you took a straw poll in our organisations, would people know what a trauma-informed approach is? I mean, it's not something, unless you're in particular workplaces, that you may have even dealt with. And I think we need to start at the basics with that as well, in terms of education, in terms of a culture. As I said, we were thinking of trying to organise some workshops that were just raising these issues. I mean, I think the left always shy away from it because they think, and it's been my experience, people think, oh, well, we're not social workers, we're not trained, we can't do this. People will just bring all their trauma to a, to a session. And I think people, there is a danger of that, but there is also, it's used an excuse not to do anything or not to deal with these issues. And I think we have to start thinking, what groups, how can we organise? How can we support people that are going through these things? How can we have some general education where we can sit and talk about these issues? And I don't think we do it enough. I think I think the same is true, like people have said on other issues, I think the same is true on disability, the same is true on mental health. I think the same is true on lots of things where people find it very hard to get to grips with the personal and the political and how they interrelate. It's a kind of like, that's not really political, or that's not really something that should concern us. Whereas, in fact, it's at the root, it's at the heart of what we're doing as socialists. And we need to put it much more at the centre, I think, of what we're doing and think about how the ways we organise make it much harder for any survivor of any of sexual violence, make it much harder for us to deal with sexual violence within our own ranks and to admit to have policies in place and to have a, a good approach to these questions. So, yeah, I think... I think it's a difficult one. I think I think it raises lots of issues about how we how how we organise as the left, and I think it raises lots of issues about how we approach the connection between um, personal and political, and how we understand and view this. And I think we need to do more theoretically in terms of not just running off the off pat things about where oppression comes from, but actually delving a bit. A bit more. I mean, I think, for example, the left could do a lot more about violence in general, about understanding violence, understanding the difference and the connections between state violence and interpersonal violence. So I think we can do a lot more theoretical on all these issues. And I think we can certainly from the start, start to try to transform our practices and make our culture one that is such that actually we do not allow a situation that developed, say, in the SWP to be able to develop within our organisations and that we deal with it on every level of our different interactions. And there's so many, yeah, I've got so many, it's hard to know where to start because I think we all probably have so many different experiences. I've got so many things I look back and think of, how did we, why did we put up with that? Why did I put up with that? How did we not notice things that were happening in our organisations? And I think 
just by having this conversation and just by having these conversations in all our separate organisations, we can at least begin to start dealing practically and politically with, with, with the issue of sexual violence. Sorry, I was rambling. No need to apologise. <laughs> I, could, I could count the number of times people have said sorry in this podcast <laughs> compared to the number of times people say this normally in an episode. I think it tells us something about gender relations, So, which is not a criticism of everybody. It's just about what we're all caught up in, right? That's very true. Um, actually, something that Hazel just said, um, it really uh, struck me, the um, the refrain of like, well, we're not social workers, right? We're not trained to deal with this. And um, I'm currently being trained to be a social worker. So this sort of thing I, I think about a lot um, because the, the history of social work as a profession is very interesting um, in that, you know, uh, social care used to be a, a communal task that that was shared in everybody in a, a community before like the rise of, of class society. Um, and then uh, within, you know, like early industrial capitalism, um, care was something that was very much uh, a, a private task that happened within the family unit. Um, and then social work kind of em emerges to um, care for, um, and I use care for here in quotes because early social work was very coercive and often hurt people more than it helped, but um, to, to care for people who had sort of fallen through the cracks of um, the the family unit, right? Who were sort of on their own in, in big industrial cities and out of work and needed help. Um, so the the idea of social care being something that is the isolated task of trained professionals is very much sort of a, a strange, alienating mutation of class society. And as much as, you know, absolutely, I, I don't think that groups on the left should be, you know, filling the role of social workers, certainly. But I think this sort of knee-jerk reaction to like, oh, we can't, you know, take care of people. We're not social workers. That's a job, you know? It's like, no, I, I think in, um, you know, whatever society we're trying to build that would be better than our current one, I, I don't think social care would be this um, professionalized task that is, you know, the exclusive uh, job uh, of a few, um, a few professionals. And, um, you know, I don't really have all the answers of how we can um, fix that problem as is, but I, I think it is very much um, something that we need all hands on deck to to figure out, right? Because this problem is going to keep raising its head um, again and again until we solve it or at least learn how to deal with it better. Um, I think um, there's a need to theorize about and understand these issues with the same energy and urgency that we devote to things like, you know, big historical splits and, and things like that, right? People spend so much time and energy on the left um, debating, you know, uh, whatever, what happened in Russia in 1921. And, you know, I think that's a fun and interesting discussion to have as well. I'm, I'm definitely not immune to it. And I do think it's important to talk about, um, you know, all the big classic uh, historical debates that people on the left love to argue about. But um, I think we should if we if we look at the history, especially recently on the left, of why organizations fall apart, there's a pretty consistent answer. Um, so it it seems to me to be a very pressing uh, concern uh, that is really under theorized about uh, and not a, as big a part of um, our political education as it really should be. Um, and we're sort of in a an interesting 
place here where obviously um, sexual violence is unfortunately common on the left. Um, but, you know, the the home, like the private sphere is not a safe alternative, right? As, a, as we know, that's where most violence happens. Um, so if we're trying to sort of socially reintegrate people into a community of any kind, which any sort of movement or organization is, we need to learn how to build healthy and functional communities, which is something that we're not really tooled to do in capitalist society. We're told how to exploit other people for our own benefit. Um, so I think that is sort of a, I guess, a lifelong uh, thing that I will be working on figuring out myself. And I, I know a lot of other people are as well. Um, but I think we really do have a, an opportunity here um, not to build something, you know, uh, perfect, because obviously we are in capitalist society. But um, I think it was uh, Hazel earlier saying that that's often sort of used as an excuse, right? That these, you know, th this type of violence is inevitable under capitalism. So we might as well just not really do anything about it. Um, but I, I think that that very much is an excuse. And, and even if we can't build something perfect, we do have the opportunity to build something better. Um, and I think that's very much worth fighting for. Um, you know, I, I remember noticing that within the organization that I was in, there were a very small number of uh, either like older women or, or women with children. Uh, the vast majority of women and other gender oppressed people were, were quite young. Um, and that just sort of struck me, just that in of itself as a, like a cultural issue and um, the ways that that um, probably shaped the, the organization's culture. Um, so like even just little things like that, like I know, I don't know, like uh, socialist book fairs and things like that will sometimes offer childcare. It's a very, very small thing. Um, but even things like that, I think are, are considerations that a lot of the time um, aren't even made. Um, so I would really like to see um, some more sort of creative effort um, on the left being put into thinking about how we can actually build communities together that are healthier than the communities that we're born into and, and how we can learn to to treat each other better and care for each other because um you know outside of the social services and even to an extent within it that's really not something that we're even taught to to try to do to think about in the society that we've all been born into and you know i guess listening to all of you addressing this question it does make me hopeful in some way because you know i think at our at our best like us the radical left in a broad sense. And I think we do have the potential to understand and act to prevent and respond better, right? In a, on a higher level than we ever have before because of the developments in theory that have happened and, you know, all the conversations that are ongoing um, doesn't mean that it's actually being done with anything like the consistency and the seriousness that's needed. But I do think there is a lot of potential. I'm certainly hoping people will use this podcast episode as an educational tool to you know, spark reflection in whatever settings that, that listeners are, are in. Um, but I, I want to just take, um, I guess, take us into the last question, um, which sort of overlaps with some of the things we've already been been saying, which is specifically talking about the problem of cis men uh, in relation to this. Because, um, although of course it's not only cis men who engage in sexual violence, they do do most of it. And this is going to continue to be the case as long as we're living in societies that are patriarchal and cis supremacist in terms of gender relations, uh, because they shape how people live along lines um, where men are active, women are passive, men are dominant, women are submissive, men are desiring, women are desired, men are seen as entitled to things, or they actually are treated as entitled to things that women aren't. All of these are 
aspects of gender relations that lead to sexual violence, uh, as you know, the best feminist analysis is telling us. So then it becomes, you know, I think ever more important to talk about how we win more cis men on the left to struggle actively against gender oppression. Uh, and then to move from that to recognizing, right, that it's not just a kind of general political affirmation, but there are all sorts of practical impl- implications for how people act and how they live. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts uh, on how we can do that better. I guess I guess some of the things that like Hazel and, and Jamie were just kind of raising as as um, processes and places like, like like just think of the term think in terms of political education. So creating environments because I know like there, there tends to be like a bit of a dissing around training now on the far left. Uh, I'm not really sure what like a lot gets lumped into. There's like like a training versus movement building. But if we if we just reframe training as political education um, and that uh, and create a valuing of it, um, you know, in in the topics that we're that we're all discussing and center that in the organization, and we're also in in that context looking at our organizational cultures. Is there anything about the structures that need to need to change in our organizations? You know, th- you know, things I was talking about, like being able to disagree, to disagree and debate political points with with uh, male leaders, informal or otherwise, or self-appointed. Um, if like, so I'm saying, struck like create these structures in which to regularly have these conversations. You know, uh, just like as uh, you know, as Jamie and Hazel were saying, and I think that gets at it because. Then, then men have to participate in that those conversations, you know, and and the good, they have to do they have to deal with the the content of it because it's part of what the group is doing. It's a central central piece of the work of the group doing this, uh, re, uh, calling this political education, right? And uh, you know, it's it's funny when we, this question not, not funny, haha, but uh, when I was I was remembering. A number of years ago, leading a sexual harassment workshop with, uh, and in which there were quite a number of, you know, far left, far left men. And there being a little bit going down a little bit of a rabbit hole when one of them in particular started talking about basically his disappointments in not being able to, uh, have sex with the, the, the political women he'd like to have sex with. And, he was trying to think of that as reverse harassment, you know? So, but, but, but I mean, so I, I'm saying creating environments where this stuff comes out and you put your jaw back up and, and you, and you actually, you know, take it on, right? The group takes it on. And I'm not saying this kind of, you know, the extreme version of this is the incel kind of, you know, you know, far right kind of response and super misogynistic response to it. But then, then you start, you, you, you put it in, you put it out and get it to the light of day and the group takes it on uh, as a whole. And then you create a new culture around how, how we relate, relate to these ideas, you know, and ways of seeing women in, in, in uh, seeing other people and, and interacting with other people. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's one thing I, I would say. Um, I, I, I guess I would say like that what we've been talking about though, around having really good policies that, uh, I know that we're trying to talk specifically around, you know, about bringing, you know, men, but I think policy, having policies around sexual violence where we're drawing, 
drawing from there's 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 a lot we can learn uh, from from mainstream processes. You know, it's been talked about the the organization socialist organization trying to catch up with mainstream pro- processes. But I, you know, my experience in you know, for example, there being rigorous and tight investigations with a real clear understanding of what's confidential, what's not, and then and, and developing an understanding of what the difference between secret what secrecy and confidentiality, right? So, I, so this is very detailed kind of work, you know, fig, figuring all that out and, and putting into place. But again, if it's centered not as a, a special working group that, uh, you know, that only a couple of, couple of women and one ally man is doing, you know, but if it's, if it's centered as a key, key, you know, organizational work to develop, uh, these processes, then, then that can help. And I guess the only last thing I would say about what, you know, uh, what we can do better is, I think Hazel brought up this earlier about querying around restorative justice. Sometimes groups will go to the go to restorative justice model, you know, at, which is which is absolutely appro- uh, uh, appropriate in many situations. Uh, rather than you know uh, trying to find you do this kind of a, as you all have been saying this bourgeois court response kind of thing to uh, complaints, but really are 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 we up to these serious accountability processes? Uh, are we really up to up to that? Are we are we are we teaching ourselves how to do that before we need to do it? You know, do like that. It, the, the 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 high degree of accountability of integrity that is required of sincerity. So it's not treated like a get out of jail free kind of process. All I have to do is sit in a room and have a conversation, and I'm sorted, right? Um, so are we serious about trying to learn how to, how to t- even take a page from that kind of process and function in that more accountable, require, extract that kind of accountability from each other, um, in advance? And, um, and I guess the last thing I would, the last thing I would say, I was brought up er- er- earlier about this, um, talking about the mi- micro party conversation. And I think Jamie was talking about this kind of veneration of, uh, of, uh, People giving their, you know, life to the party, life to the job. This voluntarism stuff is really common across all kinds of organizations of the far left, right? How, uh, and, and not even just the far left, even the liberal left. People just volunteer their time and give their all, you know, and then somehow that those are then the people that, uh, get to set the tone in the organization because, you know, we, the harder you work, the better you are. So therefore you're the best, you know? And so there's, there's I think that kind of, that, that, that kind of cultural volunteerism, uh, it, I think needs to be, uh, needs to be taken on as well. And, and there, there are, there are some dynamics. There has been a lot of critique about who, you know, who tends to have more time to be able to, to do that, right? Uh, you know, this, the single parent with a couple of kids who's working a couple of part-time jobs or, or the, you know, the guy maybe who have a, who's funded, uh, funded to go to university. And so has, has all this free time to be volunteers, that kind of thing. So there's, I think there's just, maybe a lot of this falls into the organizational, uh, cult, culture pieces, but it's, to me, it's key in dealing with, uh, you know, gender oppression as, you know, structural sets of structural dynamics. Um, me? Can I come in? Yeah, I, I feel like being a bit facetious, really, in, in saying I actually think in left groups our worry isn't. I don't think our focus should be on 
cis men at all, to be honest. I think cis men is anyone who have been who's been in a left group of any description will know, or most descriptions, um, will know that cis men tend to dominate the discussion in all sorts of ways, both in terms of theory, in terms of practice, in terms of meetings, in terms of who speaks, in terms of whose voices are most dominating and so on. And I think the best thing that we can do in terms of changing this whole culture and changing the conversation around sexual violence is not so much to think about how can we get cis men to understand these issues, but more to think about how can we bring to the fore and make our spaces comfortable for survivors of of domestic or sexual violence to make our spaces places where women, trans people, non-binary people feel they've got an equal right to speak and feel that their voices are going to be heard and that their voices and their thoughts and their theories and their ideas are heard and are central to all the ways that those groups both organise and how they theorise. And I think if we can focus, I mean, most left groups I've been in have a an issue with being able to either recruit or keep in their organisations people who are from marginalised communities, people, you know, women with kids, whatever it is, anyone that isn't part of the mainstream, who isn't a cis man, it's much harder for them to be part of these organisations and to stay in and be in those organisations because they're often structured along the lines as in the way that general society is, which is exclusive towards them, which doesn't account and, and enable them both practically, but also in terms of how people feel about themselves or whether people feel part of it, whether people have the confidence or can develop confidence to speak and be an active role and all that kind of thing. So for me, I think the most, the best way that we can make our organisational spaces, make our, our, our socialist groups better is for us to encourage and enable there to be more of those voices heard and that therefore it that will change the culture and it will change the conversation and it will mean that cis men have to start listening and being and and shutting up a bit more I mean you know it's like I think if we can have more more equality within our organizations in that sense then I think that will make a culture where cis men will have to sit up and listen, that they will have to come along and on, uh, 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 and come to a different point of view. I'm not, I mean, as I said earlier, I'm all for educating people and I'm all for holding workshops or holding meetings or whatever forms or perhaps to be a bit more inventive in the ways we do this, but whatever means we can think of in order to raise these issues, in order to to enable people to talk about them, to deal with them. I'm all for that. And I think that should be part of of socialist groups and how we deal with this and that we should encourage cis men to be part of that conversation and to be involved in that. But I think if we start our focus on cis men, then we're going down the wrong road is what I would really feel. And that actually it's to focus on bringing other people and their voices to the fore to make sure that we do... um, have their voices and have survivors' voices in the four of our organisations. I think that's the the better way of of dealing with it. In terms of a restorative justice, just a quick comment. I mean, in my organisation, we have discussed this a bit. And I think, you know, as I say, we're very small, we're a tiny organisation. And we I think we, in the end, the group of us that were talking about it anyway, I mean, I'm sure we'll come back to this, felt that it was just too big. A, it wasn't something we could handle, that we felt it would could actually be 
can make it worse for the survivors and mean that traumas were reenacted in a way that we didn't really feel that we could deal with. We, I think we felt it was such a big question that we wouldn't necessarily, as an organisation, be able to handle it. So we kind of, yeah, we, we had a lot of question, discussion about it and felt it possibly wasn't appropriate for us at that stage of our organisation. But nevertheless, that the ideas that come from that 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 trade of thought and, and, and would be useful for us in our development and that we should think about that. So I mean that might be a bit of a cop out, I don't know, but that's certainly how we felt about it. But I think um yeah. So sorry if that sounded facetious, but I do think it's important that we don't have a focus on cis men. Mm. I've apologized again. <laughs> sorry. Um I'd like to come in on something that Sheila brought up. Uh, around um, sort of having these conversations and and having these topics brought up before you really get to a crisis point, right? Um, if talking about um, sexual violence and um, you know, the oppression of women and trans people is something that is part of sort of the regular life of, of being involved in left politics, um, we won't get to these points where, um, like I know, at least in my recent experience, um, you know, people that I had worked with for years who I considered comrades, who I respected, um, you know, in light of there being um, a sexual violence scandal in the organization, all of a sudden I, I found out that like, you know, they'd believed these um, really outdated rape myths the entire time, right? And it had just never come up before, um, which is just, there's a very deep, I think, um, sense of betrayal that comes with that, right? You know, people you've been organizing alongside and then all of a sudden you found out that you were on incredibly different pages about um, like abuse and, and violence uh, that whole time. And it just never came up. And then you have to ask yourself, oh God, why didn't it come up until now? And you know, what larger political problems are implicated in that? Um, and I think that uh, touches on the restorative justice piece as well. Um, because uh, in my experience, it was sort of the same, <laughs> in some cases, the same guys who had been like repeating these rape myths who are now trying to do some sort of shoddy attempt at restorative justice. Um, and it was like, okay, if you don't seem to know the first thing about sexual violence, maybe you're not the person to be, you know, rehabilitating anybody. Um, I think uh, on restorative justice, though, I think there is I think there is a lot of um, potential there. I think the work that um, like abolitionists are doing about like theorizing community responses to um, to interpersonal violence, I, I think there is a lot of potential there. But um, I would like to see more organizations really sort of outsourcing their responses to community agencies that are already like, trained to deal with issues like this, um, maybe bringing in like external mediators are referring people out to existing community supports rather than trying to hobble something together themselves. Um, I think having like ties between left organizations and um, existing like grassroots um, social supports would be really beneficial in that way um, rather than having groups try to deal with them internally with the limited resources that they have. Um, and I would say uh, in general in, in terms of how we um, respond to these things that, that uh, I think a big issue that it's a big test to overcome is that we're raised in a culture that really detaches us um, from our own empathy, right? And, and that this is very true of cis men um, are, are raised to sort of detach their, their empathy uh, towards women and, and trans people. Um, 
So I think participation in the socialist movement needs to sort of restore that empathy across various lines of social division through political education and also through direct interpersonal solidarity to conceptualize um, sexual violence and other forms of interpersonal oppression as um, political issues and as sort of betrayals of socialist principles. Um, like we need to understand them as being poisonous to the movement in the way that they demonstrably are. Um, and I think, uh, I think we are seeing uh, the development of sort of like a, a revolutionary social culture and, and what that looks like. Um, and it definitely needs to include a, a strong stance against oppression um, that um, really runs throughout the movement. And we can't just sort of, um, I don't know, like leave people where we meet them, I guess, in, in terms of gender. I think there's this fear on the organized left that, um, you know, getting someone to switch from, you know, just being apolitical to being a socialist, well, that's already a big ask. We can't throw anything else into the mix or they might get scared. Um, and I think that actually uh, dovetails with what Hazel was saying about this sort of assumption of the um, cis man as the default sort of political subject, right? If we think that um, you know, like feminism or queer liberation or anti-racism, if we think those things are alienating and, and scary, well, who are we assuming the political subject that's going to get scared and run away is? Um, I would argue that, um, you know, because becoming a socialist is already a significant shift in understanding the world, um, we actually really don't need to leave people where they, where we find them, right? In, in terms of, of gender, we can actually, um, we can make participation in revolutionary politics um, socially transformative, both for um, people who are coming from more so from positions of social privilege, um, learning to empathize with experiences they haven't had, and also with people who have, are coming from, um, you know, uh, conditions of, of special, like social oppression, um, like coming into their own and, and learning to be more confident and assert themselves. And um, I, I think both of those things can happen simultaneously if that's something that's culturally encouraged. Um, and in places where that, that can happen, I think that's something that's very powerful. Um, and I, I really think that that is an ask that, that we can make because what we have as as socialists, as, as people on the left, what we have to offer is liberation. It is a better world. And I think there's a certain amount of discomfort or, you know, learning new things that maybe you hadn't considered before that people will actually be willing to do, um, you know, to participate in that. I don't think we actually need to be, um, you know, scraped in the bottom of the barrel uh, and just saying like, you know, let's leave people with all their preconceived notions about um, interpersonal violence because, you know, um, that the best we can possibly do is get someone to join our group. Um, I think we can honestly ask more from people and I think we'll be better off. Is there anything else that anyone would like to add before we wrap up? Just one comment. I just think it's very really important to say that the owners shouldn't be on the survivor or on the oppressed to change cis men or to change people. I think sometimes we kind of think, I, yeah, I just wanted to wrap up. Because I don't know if I made that clear. Well, thank you all very much for this and taking so much time to delve into these issues. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. 
If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.